Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have David Selly Selinger. He's the co-founder and CEO at Deep Sentinel. David, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You have a crazy amount of experience, and I think what you guys are doing at Deep Sentinel is actually something that selfishly I've kind of been looking for, you know, for my own home. But maybe before we get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. So I, I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. And my folks were both physicians and moved our family to a little town called Grants Pass, Oregon, in the southern part of Oregon. And we actually even, that's about a 20,000 person town, 15,000 person town. We actually lived in a 300 person <laughs> suburb wow. called Merlin. Wow. So, uh, Quite, quite a bit in the sticks. Interesting. So you, you went to university. What did you take and what got you passionate about that? Or was there like a defining moment as a child, you know, that made you want to take computer science? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was about six years old, my mom bought our first computer and it's going to date me a little bit. Sure. In the, in, first of all, not everybody had computers <laughs> and, and it was a really unique thing for her to do it. She bought a leading edge Model D. Okay. And I remember when she pulled up with that thing and, and introduced me to DOS 3.1 and, yeah, yeah. and we started banging away on it. I was totally in my element. And it, it, it's particularly interesting because both my folks are, like I said, they're physicians. And right. so computers were way far afield for them. And for whatever reason, when when she let me use it, I immediately fell in love with video gaming, which unlike today, as, as most of us know, was not very popular. It was a, a very geeky, dorky thing to do. Yep. I loved it. Uh, and my my inclination was to start learning how to program. So by the time I was about nine, I had taught myself to program in uh, in basic and in sure. Pascal. Sure. And then over the course of the next few years, I bought my first computer at 12. I bought a, a Gateway 2000 yep. and then taught myself C++. Wow. In uh, about That's hard, man. So, you taught yourself C++? Wow. That's great. Yeah, I, I, it was uh, it was very very difficult, and, and there weren't very many instruction manuals. No. I remember, in fact, we used to go to the the county library, and I I know where the the books are. You'd come in from the entrance and curve off to the right, and there's the first stack on the left. Wow! And they were on the fourth shelf. I'm about five foot six as an adult, so I used to have to go get the big step stool wow. and grab the books out. So. Sure. There, there weren't that many resources available. Like it's hard now it was, to learn uh, with all the resources. Like I can't even imagine learning it back then. <laughs> I don't... It's total trial by fire. And, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, again, I just, for whatever reason, I was born really fortunate, I, I guess, and fortunate that it was this day and age. I, I joke with my dad that if I'd been born 50 years earlier, not only would I have been even less employable, but I probably would have died from asthma. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was really something that was so deep in my being that even though it was very, very difficult to do, I just did it and I just sure. did it and I did it and I did it. I kept doing it. And so by the time I got to Stanford, uh, which is where I went to university, my folks had even gone so far as to enroll me in a program from Johns Hopkins university, fly me over to the East coast. And I'd already taken the first probably about two and a half years of, wow. uh, 
of Stanford's curriculum by the time I got there. Wow. So walk me through, okay, you, you graduate, you've done an astronomical amount of things up until kind of what you're doing now. Do you maybe want to kind of give us a, a pretty good overview of your kind of career, maybe some highlights kind of along the way up until sure. what you're doing now? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll tie it into to school. So I got to study sure. computer science and AI. Very cool. um, I actually ended up dropping out of school in wow. my junior year because we're right in the middle of the dot-com age. And so I started, a, a, joined a couple startups really early and, and started really early at a couple of those. Uh, got a crazy experience doing that when <laughs> went with uh, Flycast slash Engage. We went public. Wow. Uh, jumped up to like a $2 billion valuation. I remember that. I thought, heck, um, this, this making money thing is really easy. I'll just join another startup <laughs> and make even more. Sure. Uh, boy, boy, was that wrong. <laughs> um, then uh, started my own e-commerce company uh, and then went back to school. And Interesting. The e-commerce company timing was was phenomenal because it was then in the crash, it's 2001. Sure. And so I got to be there, one of these like lucky kids who was the first people to discover Google AdWords and just printing money, uh, buying AdWords at incredibly cheap rates because no one else was using it. Sure. And selling at that time I was selling really high-end coffee makers. Okay. And uh, I I parlayed that into a really high degree of interest at Amazon. They, they heard that story of what I was doing and I was essentially buying clicks for like 50 cents. You know, again, stories that's now very common, but was sure. really uncommon back then. I was, I was buying clicks for 50 cents. I was converting at 50% because I was selling really high end niche products Wow! and making a hundred to 250 bucks per sale. So wait a second. And so so you yeah. you bought this merch, these products, and then you had them kind of yeah. sitting, or did you buy them once you sold them? No, I had them sitting in a warehouse. Okay. Wow. Okay. And I partnered with a local coffee company up there to do it. Wow. And uh, and and I went to. I was bored. I was making enough money to kind of float around and do whatever I needed. And and uh, I so I went to a an Amazon interview because I was bored. Okay. And to the this guy named Neil Roseman, the VP of consumer, was interviewing me, and he he said, wait, wait, wait. He said, just what you did. I was like, wait, wait, go 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 back to that whole <laughs> bit. So you're you're buying clicks for fifty cents. You're converting fifty percent of me. You're paying a dollar for a conversion, and then you make like a hundred and fifty dollars for every one of these. And I was like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> and he's like, you you realize you're talking to Amazon right now, right? Like, and you fast forward uh, maybe like nine months, and we were. We were the first $100 million customer Google. Wow. And so they took that idea from, here's this 23, 24, 25-year-old kind of idiot, self-proclaimed <laughs> genius uh, college kid and uh, and actually took my idea and implemented it. My buddy Blake Scholl, who's the CEO of Boom uh, Supersonic, uh, actually got to run that program. And we, again, we became the first $100 million customer Google. We taught Google how to do programmatic Wow. Uh, ads and that's become SEM. So that was that was super cool. I got to build the first AI team at Amazon directly with Jeff Bezos because wow. of that. Wow! And then uh, then I went on to co-found uh, Redfin, which is a, a real estate company. Sure. And they just went public last year. Super proud of that company. I think they're just doing amazing stuff. That one was particularly fun because when we launched Redfin, which is now back in two thousand three, two thousand four. There was no interactive maps. There was no Google Maps. Yahoo Maps was a, a click-and-wait experience. It was about right. 10 seconds between every movement of the map. And we, we decided we wanted to build interactive maps on the web okay. and, and build a real estate application on top of it. So when we launched, gosh, I mean, I think it was, I think it was about 400,000 people went to the redfin.com website the first day we launched. I mean, it was wow. a, a spike in traffic that our level two internet provider called us and asked us if we were just serving porn because they'd never seen anything like that type <laughs> of a spike before. I, uh, I remember going, going home, we, you know, we launched the website, phew, we're exhausted after like 10 months of working sure. all night long. And I get up in the morning, I go to Starbucks, I'm on my way to our office, which was in uh, Pioneer Square in Seattle. Okay, sure. And every freaking person in the whole Starbucks had their laptop open and Redfin's website on it. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's awesome. Me. 
it was the most wild <laughs> launch experience ever. Sure. Um, That's great. I, uh, after I left Redfin, I, I started a company called Rich Relevance, which is a, a real-time retail personalization and AI company. Okay. I uh, grew that one to be the, the largest in the world. Wow. And uh, about five years ago, four years ago, I left that company because I, as, as wonderful as that was, it had become an enterprise company where I was really far away from the technology and okay. my, I don't know, my spirit, my passion, right? Like you kind of got that out of me teaching myself to program as a sure. kid yeah, totally. is in, in building. Yeah. And so I, uh, I wanted to get back into that. So I, I ended up leaving Rich Relevance about four years ago, specifically with the goal of figuring out what the next AI or robotics tech was going to be. Okay. And so I went really deep on a bunch of different areas and I ended up stumbling into deep learning. Okay. Which is now I think a, a certainly a buzzword. Back then it was a buzzword in the AI community. Okay. But like most buzzwords in the AI community, I kind of thought it was just going to be uh, frankly a bunch of BS. So I kind of ignored it. And then as I dug in deeper and deeper and deeper, built my own models, tested out the models that were out there, I realized, oh my God, this is, this is a transformative technology and I want to be, I want to be part of that story. So I uh, ended up calling up uh, or emailing Jeff Bezos and then calling his, his uh, investment team and, and he ended up uh, deciding to support me in starting Deep Sentinel. Okay. And then since then, we've raised uh, a little bit of money in tackling the, the home security market. Interesting. So, and that's where I am today. Okay. Before we kind of get into that, uh, like, did you keep in, in in touch with kind of Jeff over the years? Or like, obviously, a lot of people know who Jeff Bezos, kind of the, the CEO of Amazon is nowadays. And it's a huge kind of, he's a huge figure now um, in kind of the public eye. Like, I'm curious to know, did you keep in touch with him throughout the years? Yeah, I mean, not not like you know every day calling sure. him or every week. We we don't have that type of a relationship by by any stretch. But certainly, you know, sent him uh, kept in touch by email. Send him sure. an email once every six months to a year. Sure. Uh, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm seeing. And you know, I mean, uh, over the course of that year, those years, every once in a while, I would find something you know dramatically amiss with a, an Amazon product. Okay. And it, I'd get a very very quick, very senior response to that. And, and, uh, so we kind of kept in touch that way. That's very um, cool. This was the first time that I'd, I'd seen him again face to face though, which was kind of cool. I have a picture of us together in 2003 or 2004. Okay. And, uh, you know, we both had hair, we were both smiling. And then I got another picture with him a couple, couple months ago. Uh, and now we both don't have hair, <laughs> but both still smiling. Sure. And, uh, and so that's that's kind of one of my favorite uh, favorite memories in terms of that progression of our relationship. No, that's great. I, I think that's that's really cool, right? Because I, I think even in 2003, kind of maybe nerds knew who we was, but um, now it seems like, you know, my in-laws know who he is and peop just kind of the everyday person kind of knows who he is and it's just why I think it's kind of fascinating is because some of these people that were kind of you know they're they're like rock stars now like certain of these like type or uh yeah, sort of tech kind weird. of people right it's it's kind of interesting um but but one other thing I'm curious about you go by Selly how did you get that nickname so that actually goes back to Amazon as well. So I'd, I'd had the nickname Sally kind of through college at, at various points in time. Okay. And I had an opportunity to set my email address when I joined Amazon. Okay. And so I was like, all right, we'll make it Sally. Not a big deal. And what I didn't know though, was that then they would put your email address on your, um, on your name badge and everyone oh. ran around with their name badge hanging on a lanyard over their neck. Cause it's, you know, it's geek lands, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Kind of how we roll. And so my buddy, Russell Dicker, who's now at Uber, he was our Dicker and everyone would call him our Dicker. Okay. And it just, Interesting. It, it stuck, 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 stuck. And so you, whatever was on your name badge, whatever your email address was, that's, that's how it went. That's great. And, uh, and so mine ended up being Sally. And at that point, then the nickname Sally ended up showing up like, in the minutes of my nonprofits where I'm on the board of directors. Got you. And, and so then it became very, very, very stuck. 
Very, very cool. So I, I want to dive into Deep Sentinel. What exactly is it and how did you come up with the idea? Sure. So uh, the way we think about Deep Sentinel is it is the way home security will be done in the future for everyone. It is, okay. if you imagine taking all the technology advancements of the last 25 years and then taking ADT and instead of being owned by private equity and grown by acquisition, it was actually an innovative company. It would be where we would be already. Uh, mm. we, we are just taking all of the, the most current technology from uh, cameras to artificial intelligence to big data systems and all of that and applying it to the home security space. Okay. And what made me particularly interested in this was one, that the, the primary disruptive technology in that space is going to be the deep learning. And that was sure. something I was, like I said, I was really passionate about getting back involved in the AI side of things. The, the second piece about it is that this combination of technologies isn't like 20 or 30% better. It's, it's fundamentally different. And, and the, the basic premise being that we're going to take the protection perimeter uh, from being around the inside walls of your home to being the outside lines of your property. Okay. And then we're going to take that and instead of, for example, calling the police and saying, hey, I've got a motion alarm in my living room. I don't really don't know if it's just a false alarm or not, sure. which tells the police, by the way, it's probably a false alarm, just like 99% of the calls I get are. Sure. And instead, we use video. And by using the video, we can change our relationship with the homeowner. We can change our relationship with the police departments. We can change our relationship with uh, the concept of home security. Now I know, hey, there's a guy. He's wearing a hoodie. Uh, he's carrying a crowbar, and he's running towards your front door and banging on it. That's the type of phone call that when a police department gets it, sure. they know exactly what to do. Uh, and a homeowner no longer would ignore the alerts they're getting from their cameras. This is super high-fidelity signal. Now, to do that, we have to include what's called human in the loop, okay. which means that AI right now, it's phenomenally good. It is truly phenomenally good. It, it's like went from an accuracy of basic image recognition on the order of like 60% five years ago to the point where I can build a system on my laptop in my, my living room that is better than the best technology the NSA had three years ago. Yeah, and that's, that's wild, crazy. right? Ah, mind-boggling, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so it's great, but it's not good enough to identify 100% of the events. And so we introduced this man-in-the-middle approach where we actually validate and verify every single event uh, that we identify as a potential security threat. And so we're able to keep our signal-to-noise ratio basically pristine. Okay, so how do you guys do that? Is it it's through real people <clears throat> and AI, or how does that kind of work? That's right. Yeah, that's the man in the middle. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what we have is we have our own cameras. Okay. And those cameras are fitted so that they can uh, they can protect an entire perimeter. Uh, we really recognize through analysis that speed is really important okay. in the context of home security, right? Like you think about where crime is going. It's package theft. It's auto burglary. Right. It's much less of the violent crime and the, and the home invasion. So those are still happening to the tune of two to three million a year. Sure. Um, but a lot of crime on the order of 10 to 25 million a year is auto burglary and package theft. And you have to intervene in those within 30 seconds, right? So even if you have like a ring doorbell or, you know, a nest or something like that, you know that it takes like five, 10 seconds, sometimes 25 just to get the streaming to work. And so yeah. we had to build our own cameras to make sure that we're streaming and analyzing our, uh, our video streams in our AI within 750 to 850 milliseconds. Wow. So basically uh, so way instant, under one second. Right? Like basically yeah. instantly. In, in the time frame of human beings, yeah, effectively instantly. So, and, and then the the second thing we had to do is we had to make sure that AI was really quick and could run on the edge. Sure. And so we, we built a, a special purpose hub that wow. has uh, a, a GPU and a DSP in it. So we're able to run all that stuff inside our customer's home. So it's super, super, super fast. Uh, and and then we uh, then we connect that back to a global security operations center, and that global security operations center. Once we've identified, yes, this is a person. Yes, this person is doing something that could be suspicious. We're going to validate it. 
Okay. And we evaluate every single human being suspicious event uh, that touches our customer's home. And that's done by specially trained humans who are in the middle of this process and are trained to respond quickly to identify the difference between someone returning home and someone who's following them in the driveway with the intent to, uh, to uh, do harm to the family. Interesting. Okay, so uh, just this, we don't have to get like too technical, but... I'm, I'm curious to know sure. a couple of things. Um, so, and, and correct me if I'm wrong with anything I'm about to kind of ask you. Uh, so if if you notice, say, like the neighbor's cat run across the yard, it doesn't send anything to your, like the camera just says, oh, that's just somebody's pet, no big deal. Is that a correct kind of statement? That's correct. Okay. That's absolutely right. And if, okay. And if you look at the, the, like, again, if you have a ring, uh, God, God bless you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're, you're getting 100 events a day, sure. 90% of which, 99% of which are a car harmlessly driving by in front of your house oh, or a cat running in front or a tree waving in front. And so we are able to, by a combination of analyzing the behavior, discriminate between a car that's parking in front of your house okay. uh, and a car that's just driving by. Uh, we're able to discriminate between a person who's walking their dog on the other side of the street and someone who's been standing there for the last 20 minutes checking out your front porch. Interesting. Which is actually like, to your point, I never really thought of it because I don't have a ring, but I, like uh, you you would be, your phone would be constantly getting interrupted like throughout the day if you're, if if it's facing kind of the, the street and you live on a busy street. I can't even imagine <laughs> My my only response to you is, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's, wow. that's exactly wow. right. I mean, I... And, and and not only that, like at, at a certain point, we interviewed owners of all these camera systems, and and about ninety five percent of them within within four weeks, usually sooner, had turned off all the alerts. Like it's just it's just overwhelming. Interesting. And the the promise of the technology is so high, but the execution is so poor. In fact, I when I had this burglary. Uh, at, at, in my neighborhood, I went mm-hmm. and I, I went and dug into this, and I I had asked our local police department and everyone, what what is it you do? And my local chief police, a guy named Dave Spiller, is a good guy. He's at my my athletic club, so I kind of had a, okay. uh, an excuse to to call on him and say, hey man, what would you do? And he said, look, we we've actually had this experience where when we have suggested to, to homeowners that they install cameras. That you know, it's it's kind of a nice deterrent, but it doesn't really do anything. Sure. But we had one neighborhood where there's a neighbor who's agreed to watch all the cameras for all the neighbors, and that guy has basically eradicated crime in his neighborhood. Sure. So if you can recreate that for your neighborhood, that'd be great. And obviously, my brain clicked in and said, "I'm not going to eradicate that for my neighborhood. Yeah. I want to eradicate that for everyone." Yeah. No. Okay. Interesting. So it will pick up like if I come through the door with I have because I'm a human being, it'll notice me, but Yep. You're, and it'll f- go to your monitoring staff, which is a human being, and it'll say like, oh, this guy's just bringing the groceries or he just picked up the kids and he's coming home from his day. Fair enough. Correct. You know, and and we'll have a profile for the home that says, here are the people that are regularly coming to that home. Gotcha. There you go. Okay. And then I'm assuming that if I have guests and stuff come over, again, you guys will, you know, obviously you'll you'll see, see them come, no big deal, um, and – you just go on with your day. And then, yeah, like you said, if there's something that looks suspicious, you'll, you know, kind of watch the video and then call law enforcement if needed. That's actually quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, or, or, or actually, we, we built it actually. The, the other reason we built it on hardware is we don't want to call law enforcement all the time. We do talk about our advantage to law enforcement. I mean, man, I, 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 I'm excited about working with them in an environment where I can tell them, look, we're going to call you instead of five minutes after someone's entered the home, we're going to call you two minutes before they've entered. And by the way, zero false alarms. Right. You know, I can't imagine a cop in the U S that's going to be bummed about that. Sure. Um, but actually what we do is we even intervene before that. So we put in a, a, a really loud speaker is about 110 decibels. Oh wow. So it's about just, just slightly less loud than if you stuck your ear right on your, your smoke detector in your house. Okay. Uh, so we stuck that onto the camera and we integrate that into those humans. So, Within 10 seconds, 20 seconds, you're going to hear one of my staff coming over saying, hey, dude, we, we see what you're doing. Sure. The police have already been called. I recommend you just leave the house, leave the car alone. You picked the wrong house. Get out of here. Sure. Interesting. Yeah, and like n- nobody's doing that now, right? Like it's – yeah. Nobody, okay. nobody. Sure. 
So I'm curious to know about installing this on my home because how how hard is it? Because some of these smart home devices are, you know, minutes can take hours sometimes. How hard is it to put it on my yeah, house? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, uh, I I personally have owned three or four rings, and I've gotten okay. zero of them to be compatible with my my router for whatever reason. Sure. Um, you know, and I'm a I'm a tech dude. Like, yeah. I got I finally did eventually get my degree from Stanford, so I think you know I've got yeah, some yeah. chops there, and I still <laughs> couldn't get it to work. Sure. Yep. And you know, and, and and no disrespect to Ring, I think man, those guys built a great business, um, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a lot of energy analyzing what are the best practices. And, and the company that we think did, frankly, the best job at solving that particular problem, while we, we don't like the way they did the rest of their business, we, we think they did a great job at this, was Netgear Arlo. Okay. And so we looked at, we read every single review that every single consumer ever wrote about Netgear Arlo. Interesting. Um, and they loved the install process. They didn't like, they, they have a battery-powered camera. They didn't like the battery life. They didn't sure. like some other things. But we... We went and said, all right, let's take everything great about their install process and let's make it even better. And so we uh, we make all of our cameras battery powered. So there's no, uh, from an out-of-box perspective, there's no need to run wires or anything like that. We include our own hub. Uh, okay. and, and because, thank goodness, we're already running a hub to do all of our AI on the edge to do that locally inside the home, uh, we have to have a hub anyway. And so we just put our Wi-Fi, we run a private uh, network inside of your home. Oh, interesting. And so there's no configuration. In fact, you just plug the batteries into our cameras okay. and you turn on the app and it's a, and it'll just discover all your cameras automatically. It takes about mm, somewhere between 30 and 45 seconds, sometimes a minute wow. to, to get all your cameras up and running. Okay. And then, uh, we made the mount process really easy. It's a single piece mount. You only have one screw you get to install for each of the the cameras and okay. the verb that we like to use to describe the installation instead of installing or wiring up the cameras, we like to call it hanging them up. Okay. And we, our goal for my UX team was to make sure that we made it at so easy that a consumer would be ready and willing to call it hanging, uh, as, as the verb to install. I see. No, I, actually, I don't know if I have a bunch of smart home devices in my house and even just putting light bulbs in and syncing the light bulbs was not was like minutes of uh, yeah. maybe even longer than that. I don't like sometimes the it was like problem. sometimes it was like fifteen minutes to get a light bulb to sync. And and the worst part about it is yep. I bought the ones without a uh, a hub because I was like I don't really necessarily um, I, I wanted just yep. the light bulbs to connect to my phone, right? Because I wanted to be able to just turn them off. But the problem that I found is if if you flick the light switch three times in a row, which my daughter loves to do, it resets them. <laughs> <laughs> Test all IoT products with kids, yes, by the way. Yes, yes. Like, total, um, total rule of thumb. Yes, because if, if there's a way to reset them simply, they will figure that out by accident, right? Yep. Um, but, but no, I, I think the point I'm trying to get across is like the fact that you actually spent a, an enormous amount of time doing research to kind of figure out the pain points of just installation, um, is a huge thing that I think people don't think of because I didn't think of it when I bought those lights, they were kind of a pain in the ass to set up. And, um, even I had a buddy that bought a thermostat and he, again, he's in tech, he's been in tech a long time, super smart guy, one of the smartest people I know. He couldn't even get it installed and he ended up having to like, he ended up blowing something in his house and he had to get like the electrician out. It was like a whole hassle. And you're like, you know, why is three or four wires so complicated? But so, right, like I think people don't think about that. That's a great Amazon review right there, right? Exactly, right? So I I think the fact that you guys spent a lot of time on that, people don't think about it, but they will notice it immediately when you know, if it connects right away and it's really easy to set up on the outside of their house. Right. Uh, I think that's a huge yeah, I mean, thing. I, I, I completely agree. I, I, you know, I, I was really fortunate at two points in my career to get the concept of user experience driven home for me. Sure. The first one was at Amazon. I, I worked uh, again. I got to build the first successful AI team. Actually, they, they had tried a couple times prior, um, but they were run effectively kind of in an academic way. Okay. Okay. And my approach was much more entrepreneurial 
and was informed not not just by my experience, but I think in, in a large part by a guy named Larry Tesler. Okay. And Larry Tesler was the head of UX at Amazon, and he'd been the head of UX for Steve Jobs at Apple oh, wow. and at Xerox Park sure. on the mouse. I mean, this guy is the dude, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and he was just totally wow. focused on what is that experience. And you don't have to have a thousand customers to see pain. Sure. When you see pain, respond to it and fix it in the user experience. And that was his entire his entire mentality. I just, I loved working from and learning from him. Sure. Uh, and so that got ingrained in me there and, and we saw it, right? We do AB tests that when we removed uh, painful steps in navigation and, and in the, the buying process, we were able to increase conversion and, and measure it in dollars. Wow. And then the second place obviously was, was Redfin. And, and I don't know that we were the, the very first UX based startup, but we were, certainly in the first five or 10 where we had a truly transformative user experience that led to hundreds of thousands and millions of users basically instantaneously. And that UX was that map and making the map clickable and, and, and glidable. In fact, the headline in the Seattle times for that, uh, our, our launch was a sit down fly by real estate experience or something like that. Okay. And it wasn't about the business model. It wasn't about it being on the internet. It was about this user experience being really unique and, and investors in fact, at the time thought, well, that's a gimmick. It'll only last, you know, maybe a year at best. Well, fast forward 15 years, that's still red, Redfin's primary platform as a, as a multi-billion dollar company. Their entire platform is on making the user experience better. Sure. And that's what gets them the, all the traffic. That's what gets them all the rave reviews about their, their user interface and their app. And so I, I've long been a, a student of the user experience, and I'm, I'm a total convert in terms of spending the time and energy to do that right. Sure. So I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that in a second. But I want to go back to when can people actually get one of these cameras? Sure. <laughs> boy, boy, isn't that the question of the day, right? <laughs> yes. So, uh, so right now you can go onto our website, deepsentinel.com and you can sign up and we send out a weekly email kind of updating our, our interested parties on the status of this. You just go to the website, sign up for the email and you'll, you'll get uh, an email once a week and it'll tell you, tell you where we're at. Okay. From there, you can actually click through and you can reserve a spot. Uh, we won't take your credit card number this week. Um, but we are, let me just put it this way. We're just weeks away from mass production. Um, and our, our first, what what I'll call open beta, meaning customers that will be paying for the product. Um, but, uh, but it'll still be in beta mode. Uh, and that'll be over the course of the next eight weeks. Okay. So really quick then. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're very, very close. We have full feature completeness in terms of the the product and we've already selected our, our mass production partners in Taiwan and China and they are readying our manufacturing line. In fact, our, our manufacturing line is, it has been validated and we're just enhancing and optimizing it right now. Interesting. Okay, very cool. So I, I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into some of this stuff because I, I didn't tell you kind of before, but I basically, I'm chief designer at chief design officer at a startup up in Canada. So I've been in kind of the UX design space for my whole career. I was in the space even before UX was a thing or like called a, called UX, right? So for me, yeah, it's right? kind of so, <laughs> so, yeah. So it's it's been kind of super close to, to my, and I, I agree with you, I think, obviously I agree with you, but um, that I think you use user experience <laughs> is super important. And I think more and more companies are starting to see that. I think um, companies like yourself, I think obviously Apple, um, a handful of other companies have really kind of put design in the forefront um, and a lot more companies and people are starting to think about like that. But I, I'm, I guess my question to you is you're designing hardware, software, also having human beings actually use the hardware and software, maybe not necessarily installing this, the hardware, but they're, you know, if you're people that are monitoring, um, you know, your, your devices are obviously kind of using them as well. So how do you... Mm-hmm go about kind of tackling such a huge problem from hardware and software with a kind of design focus? Because I think that sounds like such a daunting task. And what advice do you kind of give people that are looking to, you know, build something in the hardware software kind of space? 
Wow, that is a that is a complex question, and I and I will answer it by using the advice I would give, which is to decompose it and then reassemble it. Okay. And the the decomposition step is to tackle each of the individual problems in a in a kind of an isolated environment. Um, and in order to do that effectively, by the way, you have to have whether you call them brand guidelines or key UX principles or something like that, but you have to have a baseline of things you agree, here's what we're trying to accomplish and here are the, the boundaries within which we're willing to operate to accomplish that. And so we decomposed our problem, we built out those brand guidelines and we decomposed that problem into what is our core user experience on a day-to-day -day basis, Okay. what is our out-of-box experience, what is our onboarding experience, what is our brand and sales experience, and then what is the total end-to-end -end user experience. That's the reassembly step. And then for each of those individual things, we implemented very lightweight testing that we do on a really regular basis. Okay. Uh, so for example, for the out-of-box experience, uh, my head of design is a guy named Chris McElroy, and he was actually a co-founder at another hardware software startup uh, maybe five, six years ago called Boombotics. Okay. And so he really gets that UX, he gets design, and he gets hardware. So that also has been really helpful is having someone who inherently gets each of those pieces. Sure. And so Chris and I, we've gone through, gosh, I want to say like, six or seven different versions of our out-of-box experience, at least, if, if not more. Now, those okay. are the kind of the major versions. And uh, what we would do is we would uh, go grab people at our, uh, our local coffee shop. We're, we're right across the street from a, uh, a little coffee shop. Okay. And just don't be afraid. He, uh, he'll go and say, hey, do you got 20 minutes? Could I, could I buy you a gift card for 20 coffees or for 10 coffees or something like that okay. and just come up and, and give us your feedback. And this That's is again amazing. something that, that Larry Tesler was big on was just, you don't need to do everything quantitative. You do want to do stuff quantitative where you can, sure. but go get lots and lots and lots of insight because pain is generally pretty universal. Sure. Optimization you want to do on numbers, but your core pain observations, you, you don't even probably need three people before you're going to find your first like really glaring, obvious, sure. silly, ridiculous mistake. Sure. And so, uh, and Chris, when I asked Chris if he'd do this at first, he said, first of all, Sally, uh, I'm your head of design, so absolutely we're going to do that. Okay. Secondly, I used to be a door-to-door -door salesman, so going and asking people if they'll do something for me, it, it, it's not a daunting task for me at all. Like, that's exactly what we want to be doing. Okay, interesting. Uh, and so, you know, an example of what came out of that was we used to have a flap in our packaging that you'd, you'd flap it down and say, here's your quick start guide. Okay. It turns out in our observations, quick start guide works. It's cool for anyone who's opened up an IOT device. It mm -hmm. works like 60, 70, 80% of the time. Okay. Uh, for customers who do not, are not big in the IOT space. What the hell's that? Okay. Whatever. And they oh, would throw it away. Interesting. And so our quick start guide is labeled, uh, take this out and open this guide to install your product. <laughs> okay, makes sense. You know what? That one works 100% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Can Can I ask one thing before you continue? Because it's totally related. When yeah. When Chris was out asking these people that uh, to get feedback on the thing that he had a hand in designing, did he tell them yeah. that he designed it, or did he say? I'm an objective third party. I didn't design this at all or some version of this. So you're not going to offend me when, if you give me your uh, you feedback, know, good it, or bad, do you know that answer? That's a great first practice, best practice. I don't think that we went that far. What we generally said was we want every piece of feedback you have to give. Okay. And you, you can indicate that if you do like a survey, it's especially important to do that because it's a hands-off process, mm -hmm. but you can convey that same communication through just really, really direct active listening. Like, okay. tell me what happened there. Tell me, what were you thinking? What did we do wrong there? I really want to understand it. And as long as you're using that really quasi-aggressive, actually, listening skill, okay. you get you get the same point across. But, but your point is absolutely right, that human beings, by their nature, 
will bias towards away from conflict. Yeah, and they bias towards kind of giving nice comments. Yeah, if they know you, especially if they know you did the design on it, they will try not to hurt your feelings. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Sorry, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. But yeah, we did we did it a different way, which is just really doing active interviews. So we didn't we did do a survey, which was helpful. Um, but the survey is much less interesting sure. than the qualitative. Oh, I saw you just took the, this piece of paper and put it to the side. Tell me why you did that. Interesting. Because well, it's just a piece of paper. Okay. Well, why didn't you open it up? Well, cause it says quick start guide. The quick start guide is probably underneath here somewhere. Interesting. Okay. Uh, all right. So you, you get these people to do the, all these, these tests. You go back, you make new versions. Obviously, you test the next version at the same coffee shop. Yeah, I mean, we we, <laughs> we bought a lot of free coffee. That's at amazing. That coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, but so that's we, pretty inexpensive uh, compared to like, right? Like that's kind oh, of a cheap man, way of yeah. doing it, right? That was probably total cost of like two thousand bucks. Yeah, that's great. Versus you know doing a survey or panels like fifteen sure. grand. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's super deep. Sure. Because you get the opportunity to ask follow-on questions. Yeah. Um, in fact, we had some people that just, they loved that experience of someone, A, caring about what their feedback was, and B, kind of being part of something cool. Sure. Uh, I, I want to say like a quarter of them just gave us our money back anyway. Really? Wow. Yeah, they were like, this is so much fun. <laughs> did, did, did they have, like, what was in the box though? Like, was it a prototype? Was it a pretty close to the real design or, or like... How was the camera kind well, again, of? Again, it, de- it depended on what we were testing. So okay. For some of these for the out of box, mm-hmm. it was just testing the out of box. Did you open the guide? Did you download gotcha. the app? Okay. Were you able to follow the steps in the app? Okay. Uh, for the full onboarding, we had yeah. to do full, uh, you know, functional prototypes. Okay. And then for the the team, you mentioned like the security staff. Yeah. Uh, we have to have full functioning prototypes. Okay. Sure. And so you did the same thing with with the staff then that you had them kind of interact with the software and, and everything? Yep. Okay. And yep. then and then did you have anybody actually do the install on like a prototype or anything? Yeah, we totally did. We So we installed a huge sheet of plywood outside of our door. Uh, so we didn't want people drilling holes into our, all of, all sure. of our drywall. Sure. So we, we had people as a part of the install UX. Uh, we had them, we gave them a drill. We gave them a screwdriver, gave them the equipment in the in the box, and had them walk up on a ladder and actually screw the stuff into the wall. And did you point it the right direction? Did you understand how the mount works? Did you understand how the mount clips together? Uh, we spent, I want to say, and this is kind of going to be an embarrassing number, almost two hundred thousand dollars on prototypes of our mount. Wow! Because it was so important to make sure that it was one piece. We found that if we had a two piece mount. Because it has to be able to be adjustable. And so a lot of ways people solve the adjustable amount is have two pieces that clip together in different ways. Mm. But two pieces communicated to people this is too complex and I don't even want to try it. Interesting. So I to make it one piece but then still super flexible and super strong. And so we, we did tons and tons of testing on that. Okay. The other thing we learned was that if you have two screws – Okay. Installing it in drywall or masonry is almost impossible because you have to line the screws up. Of course, yeah. And so we had to make the whole thing a single screw. Wow. Which weight and everything kind of factors in more, right? And weather conditions probably too. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So how did you kind of test some of that stuff? Uh, I mean, same same type of way. First same one, way. we did okay. a lot more testing of, of our own to make sure we could get it to work. Right. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Constraints. Yeah. And then and then the same thing, just asking people, do you see how this works, and can you get it to can you get it to function? Okay. Did you guys test it all in different weather conditions? Uh, we didn't test the install in different weather conditions. We tested the device in different weather conditions, though, to okay. be able to. Sure. To, it has to be robust, um, but I don't I don't know that we'd ask anyone to install it in snow. I'd, sure. I'd, I'd probably just wait wait till it's done snowing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. Um, so I'm curious though. You, you mentioned earlier you you're getting this stuff kind of max or manufactured in China. How did you guys kind of work with that team over there to actually get you know kind of the first few prototypes, or did you get the prototypes actually done in America? Yeah, so that's a a great question. The answer to your question is we didn't do a great job of it. Okay, interesting. And we did make a bunch of mistakes there. We're very fortunate that my co-founder is Taiwanese, and so we have an office of Chinese-speaking folks, nice. in, a Mandarin and, and Cantonese, actually. Yeah, that's huge. In uh, Taiwan and here. 
Okay. And that helps a ton. Um, that said, though, we did find that building the prototypes in the U.S. was much more effective than doing it in China. Okay. Um, we did do a number in China, but it was just really slow, and you're, you're back and forth, even if you speak the same language. Uh, it's just it's a different environment, it's a different ecosystem, different definition of speed. And so we've had a lot more success building our prototypes fully in the U.S. Um, as it relates to the electronics. Okay. As it relates to our actual casing and the plastics, we, we ended up finding a fantastic partner in China okay. who was able to move quickly for us and, and get to mass production quickly. Um, but for the electronics, we definitely have found that using U.S.-based fabs uh, is way, way cheaper okay. in the long run uh, and, and way more effective. Interesting. So did you end up going over to China or how did you decide who you wanted to actually use over there? So uh, I've been really fortunate to have a great team here that's done this for 20 okay. years. Nice. That'd be a big piece of advice I would offer is that if you do have the flexibility to hire more senior people, it, it helps an infinite amount, especially when you're doing a vertically integrated, really complex product that's hardware, software, AI, and, and uh, service. Sure. And so I've really been, been fortunate that I hired a team that has 20 years of experience in manufacturing in China, 20 years of doing consumer products. Uh, and so I have a combination of a great COO who's done hardware for his whole career and he just knows wow. how to evaluate and work with factories. I have a great head of sourcing and he manages all those supplier relationships and is able to manage a combination of quality and time and cost SLAs. Okay. And he just has great relationships already. So they came with that to the company with vendor relationships that were vetted, who had you know, no, no one with whom he had, they had either worked with for less than 10 years. Oh, wow. So I mean, these weren't, I built one product with these guys and, you know, maybe gave them a million bucks. These are like, I built 20 products. I've spent 120, $300 million with these vendors. I know how they work. No, I, I, that's actually quite really good advice. So I, I'm curious though, um, we talked a little bit about it, but what about on the software side of things? How did you guys go about kind of actually testing some of that stuff out? Yeah, so I'll, I'll share with you the stuff we did well first and the sure. stuff we did poorly. Sure. So the stuff we did well was we built our entire software stack using other people's hardware. So we didn't wait for our hardware team to, oh, to build our software. We had full running prototypes almost a year and a half ago. Wow. Um, and we deployed those to numerous homes and made sure the AI was working, the hardware was able to you know, manage the capacity. We were able to do the correct computer vision. We were getting high quality, uh, high fidelity events. We were able to manage that through a combination of cloud on-premise and our remote monitoring center. Okay. So we nailed all that stuff down again, decomposed. Sure. The mistake we made in the assembly step was we, we did assembly too quickly. Okay. Uh, and my, my recommendation on how to do that well is do that a piece at a time. Get a full working prototype in the context of your hardware and firmware done first, okay. and then start integrating software. And then as you integrate the software, don't integrate all of it, integrate it a piece at a time. Okay. And I wish someone had given me that advice sure. <laughs> a year ago. That one probably cost us like two and a half months delay wow. of not doing that correctly. So when you say <clears throat> a piece at a time, what does that kind of mean? Like get audio working? Yeah, yeah. Then get video working? Exactly. Okay, okay. Exactly. Just get audio working. Just get video working. Just get it working one way. Then get it working two ways. Uh, we jumped and had everything and just kind of did a big flip-flop. And so then the number of issues we had were just astronomical. So the team got overwhelmed and you know if you if you read you know whether it's four hour work week yeah, or you know sure. the seven habits of effective people or you know whatever every one of those or you're just a client a, a, a convert of neuroscience i think a lot of those things all point to the same thing which is that the human brain gets overwhelmed by a quantity of work regardless of how hard each individual step is and so we went from having you know three bugs in our pipeline to having a hundred <laughs> in sure. a day and it just that's impossible to manage. Sure. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So I'm curious, are you guys, and you don't have to give me anything more than kind of a broad answer. Are you guys looking to move into other hardware products in the future? 
So uh, we will expand our our SKU count marginally. We're not gonna okay. we're not looking to become a hardware company per okay. se. Okay. We love the combination of artificial intelligence and home security and service. Okay. Those three things where we believe we can be the best in the world sure. and we can own that and dominate that multi-billion dollar market. That's that's enough for me for the next uh, few years. You know, I'm not going to look to make a an Alexa competitor or, you know, a connected speaker or anything like that. Mm. We believe the home security market is where our passion is. It's where we know our service is the absolute and unconditional best thing out there that every police department can verify that at the point you're protecting your entire property and you're doing video validation on everything and you have a human in the loop. So you don't have to sit there and look at your own phone all day long. Boom. You know, you had me at hello. So let's stick with where we're the best and let's make continue to be better where we're already the best. I no, I, I think that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. And Sally, we're, we're coming to the end of the show so let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about Deep Sentinel and actually, you know, place their order to get one in, in kind of the coming months. Yeah, sure. So if you go to our website, deepsentinel.com, you can check out our, our marketing materials. It'll tell you about how's the product work, what does it do, what are all the different components we put into there. We try to be real transparent with, with all those different chunks. And, uh, and from there, you can sign up to be a pre-order or uh, email uh, member. And in, uh, like I said, the next about eight weeks, it'll be, it'll be viable there as well. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks a bunch. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.